let's get started. We did stop at Son of Man last week. Um, I realized that I don't think I gave out the verses for Christ and the passages for Christ. We just kind of skipped over that. So we'll go back and grab that. Um, let's open up in prayer first, though. Lord, we do thank you for prayer. Um, pray that you would help us to realize and to embrace the importance of prayer, the fact that we have a God who we can come to in prayer, that we would be still and realize that you are God, and just soak that in every now and then, really continually to be praying um, all throughout the day without ceasing. God, we thank you for our mediator, for our intercessor, who makes it possible for us to come to you without the need for a priest or a human mediator, but there is one mediator between God and man, and we know him personally. We thank you for that. We pray once again that you'd help us to have a deeper understanding of who you are, that as we go through this lesson that we would just be in awe of the Son of Man, of Jesus, who took on flesh, the Word incarnate, um, and that we can know him in an intimate, personal level despite the fact that you are transcendent. There is nobody above you, that you are the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega. What an amazing truth for us to try to wrestle with and try to grapple with and uh, a concept that we'll never fully understand, but we pray that you'd help us to, uh, to make progress towards that end. God, we pray for the, the kids and the people in the other classroom that you'd be walking with them, pray for the Howards, and, uh, others who aren't here today for uh, Bussians, for Stan, uh, God, we thank you for the unity that we have in you, for the unity that we have in this local body, and pray that that would just deepen and grow as we grow closer to you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're looking at the the titles of Jesus, the titles of the Savior, and again, I said that. Uh, we just kind of rushed through Christ last week without taking some time to look at some passages that were related to that, and I didn't realize that until after the class. So let's go back and uh, look at a couple of passages talking about how Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One that the Jews in the Old Testament were looking forward to. Um, could I get somebody to look up Matthew 16, verses 16 and 20? Matthew 16, 16, and 20. Yeah, and while you're looking that up, will somebody else grab John 11, verse 27? John 11? 11, 27, yes, please. And I'll grab a couple from the book of Acts that we have been in the last couple weeks in our Wednesday night Bible study. All right, whenever you're ready, Andy. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Alright, so in those verses we see um, that Simon recognized, Simon Peter recognized that he was a Christ, he was a Messiah. Um, but then Jesus told him, Don't go telling everybody, right? Um, his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for everybody to realize that he was the Christ. Um, and that's kind of important when we start to look at this other name that Jesus used of himself, this other title, Son of Man. Uh, he used that title more often than any other title, I think in part because his time had not yet come. And it wasn't a title that would cause people to pick up stones and stone him like Son of God would that we looked at last week. Um, it was a little bit more veiled in its aspects of deity and focus on his aspect of humanity. Uh, John 11:27. Yes, Lord. She told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. All right. Again, it was kind of um, sporadic where people would realize and recognize that he is a Christ. And more and more people had that revealed to them. Again, looking back to that Matthew 16 passage. Uh, Peter realized that because God had revealed it to him, not because flesh and blood had made it obvious to him. Um, and so that kind of goes into, again, the, the point that Jesus was holding on to that 
that revelation at that point in time while he was still walking on the earth. And then Acts 17, 3. <clears throat> I'll read 2 and 3. It says, According to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So, yes, there was a, a Messiah. Yes, he was to come. And he had to come in order to, to suffer. That was his purpose. And Paul went around preaching and teaching that Jesus was that Messiah, the anointed one who was chosen and set apart and who was to come. And then again in 18.5, Acts 18.5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And there we see that he's speaking to the Jews in particular, going back to the Old Testament and revealing to them from the Old Testament scripture the fact that he was the Messiah. Um, And we'll get into that a little bit this morning and see how from the Old Testament we see pictures of, of Christ and prophecies that Jesus was to be the Messiah um, and the Jewish people more than a, a Gentile person would have been looking forward to the Messiah but the majority of them missed it they're looking for something else um, we talked about that a little bit last week um, under Son of God and how they were looking for somebody to come and to rule and to reign rather than a suffering servant of Christ. All right. Any thoughts or questions from these other titles, from Christ or Jesus or Son of God from last week before we get into Son of Man? All right. The Son of Man denotes the humanity of Christ. And again, it's his favorite self-designation. He uses this term to describe himself more than any other title or, or phrase. Christ is the most common term used of him, but it's not the title that he uses most often for himself. Though this term does imply deity, it was generally not offensive to others. So we'll look at how there's an aspect of deity involved in there, but people generally accepted it as just a, a typical title. Daniel 7, 13, and 14, Mark 10, 45, and Luke 17, 26 through 30. I get people to look those up, and we'll see how the Son of Man is used in those different passages. I'm going to grab a, a fourth one here. Has anybody got Daniel 7? So a couple things we see in that passage from our previous studies, we see the plurality of God, right? The one like a son of man is going to come up to the ancient of days. So we see the the person of the son, the second person of the Trinity coming up to the first person in Trinity, the father, the ancient of days. And then we also see that um, he has a, an everlasting dominion. So looking at the attributes of God and that they apply again both to the father and the son, to the one being of God. Um, it's not something that's divided up among different persons of the triune God. Mark 10.45. We've got that. Sure. And then we need Luke 17 after that. You got Luke. Okay. Go for it with Luke, Andy. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, 
They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. All right. That's kind of scary, right? Yep. Hmm. All right, so two times in that passage we see the Son of Man, and just like with that Daniel passage, we see that he has full authority, authority to, to judge, and uh, that his dominion will be an everlasting dominion. He's going to reign forever, and it's going to be a, a physical judgment, just like it was in the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember it, you had, I'm clicking buttons up here, Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right. And again, I think that's kind of the the aspect that he wanted portrayed more than uh, that the aspect of deity, which is veiled in Daniel 7. But he wanted people to see that he was uh, a suffering servant. And again, when Mark was writing, that was his whole focus. Each of the gospel writers had a different focus, so written through... Uh, Matthew, like I'm going to be, he's writing to the Jews, focusing on Jesus as the king of the Jews. Mark is focusing on Jesus as a suffering servant. Uh, Luke and John have their own purpose for who they're writing to and why they're writing. And so I want to read probably my favorite verse. What's up, Walker? My favorite verse talking about the Son of Man. We looked at it a little bit last week, but Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64. And we see, I think it's Christ and Son of God in this. Yep, we see both of those. So Christ, Son of God, and Son of Man, all used in just this two-verse little uh, saying. So 63, but Jesus kept silent. That's while he was on trial. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. So he didn't deny being the Christ. He didn't deny being the Son of God. He said, you are the one who said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, so he didn't deny being the Son of God, didn't deny being the Christ, but he said, you will see the Son of Man. Again, referring back to, to Daniel 7 and pairing that with what he says here in Matthew 26, that he will have all authority be given to him and he's going to be coming on the clouds in judgment um that's a, a pretty awesome statement while he's being tried and and questioned as to his deity um so son of man wasn't denying his deity it was just a little bit more veiled than what we might think of of, of son of god thoughts or questions on son of man Jesus' favorite term for himself. I actually had a discussion several years ago with a local young man who had become atheistic, and he said, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I'm like, say what? Huh. You know, and I took him to um, John 8, 58, yeah. and I think I used this one also. And I'm like, why were they tearing their robes when he said this? Explain that to me. Yeah. Well, you know, you tried to do the two-step boogie, and it, no, it's you know, Jesus was very clear that he was God, and that was what infuriated the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you get past the the I am statements of John. Right. Yep. The Son of Man always. Kind of, I don't know, it, it uh, surprised me, I guess, when I first started studying it. I thought, well, who would have a question that Jesus was human? But there was a group that claimed he wasn't human. And so I didn't see that coming. I wouldn't have seen that coming. I would have thought he'd had a harder time proving his deity yeah. than his humanity. But yet he felt, he knew there would be a group that would deny his humanity. Yeah. So, it's both both ways. It seems like he has to prove he is human. He has to prove he is God. Uh, it's interesting. 
yeah, by this time the, the roots of Gnosticism were already starting to grab hold. It didn't really sprout until the, the second century. But uh, Gnosticism would say that the flesh is, is sinful. And so there were different uh, branches of Gnosticism that said that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body. Um, so many different branches. But um, yeah, some of them would say he didn't have a, a physical body. And others would say <clears throat> that he just assumed a physical body while he was on the cross. And then he kind of um, took like a step back, I guess, into his deity. I don't know. Um, weird views. And we'll get into that when we talk about the hypostatic union and how Jesus is 100% God and 100% man and all the, the views that are wrong with that and how it's important that we understand that it's not a blend of, of two natures but the two natures of Christ and how they are um, distinct but in the one person of Jesus. So bring a, a extra Tylenol that morning I guess. <laughs> all right. I got here this morning and it wanted to update. So, <laughs> it's always cute, right? Um, all right, son of David. I'm going to look back into the Old Testament a little bit. Jesus is an earthly son of David. Uh, Joseph was part of David's uh, literal lineage. Remember that David was the king of Israel. And we're going to look at some of the promises that God made to David. Theologically, this has huge implications for Israel. Um, and for the future of Israel as well. Second Samuel 7, 8 through 17. I can grab that one. This one be able to grab 1 Kings 9, 4, and 5. You guys can start making your way to uh, we'll go into those first two and, and reading those out. So 2 Samuel 7, that is the go-to chapter for the Davidic covenant. I'll read verses 8 through 17. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they may live in their own place, and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked affect them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Let me read that again because I misread it. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, not descendants, after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever, in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So we see that he's speaking of Solomon immediately, that Solomon's going to rise up. He's going to build a temple. David's hands were, were too bloody. He killed too many men to be able to build a temple to God. Um, so God let him build up all the materials, stockpile it, and Solomon came along and built the temple. But then he says in verse 16 that your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Um, that's on into eternity future. And it's a, a foreshadowing of Christ and the throne that he is going to, to reign on for all of eternity. 1 Kings 9, 4 and 5. 
As for you, would you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did? Do all I command and observe my decrees and laws. I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. All right, so we see in verse 4 that he uses that word if there, right? So that's a, a conditional statement. How do we make sense of that in view of what we just read in Second Samuel 7? He says, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, then I will establish your throne. Any thoughts? Well, that's addressed to Solomon. Solomon didn't follow through. So that's, that part was expressly to Solomon. But when Christ is on the throne, he will walk perfectly. So it will apply to him forever. Yeah, so it's, it doesn't negate the promise that he made to David. Uh, he's just going to say that this will be for for you in this, this earthly sense uh, forever. But as he said, Jesus, he is the great fulfillment. He is without sin, uh, and he will sit and reign on that throne for, for all eternity. All right, somebody have that Jeremiah 33 passage. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, Jerusalem will dwell safely, and this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priest, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. All right, so we see a, a couple aspects of Jesus' ministry in that. We see um, that he will be sitting on the throne of David forever, and he will also be acting as a, a priest forever. Um, remember that Jesus fulfills three different roles. He is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our king. Um, and that that king aspect goes back to, to David and that promise that God made to David all those years back. Um, and it's pulled out here in, in Matthew 1.1. Remember I told you that Matthew is writing to the Jews for the express purpose of letting them know our Messiah is here. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is a son of David. And so right off the bat, he says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, so he's harkening back to 2 Samuel 7 um, and this fact that God had made this promise to David. Um, and he's holding him up. He's a, a son of Abraham. You guys are all children of Abraham. You have this highest in this high regard for who Abraham is. Well, his descendant, the promised Messiah, is here. And I'm going to tell you all about him. And if you're anything like me, you look at the first chapter of Matthew, and you're like, oh, there's some more genealogy, right? And it doesn't have the same punch that it does to us as it would for the Jews to really show and establish the Davidic line of who Jesus is. And the promise that he is that king, that he is going to be sitting on that throne. And now my pointer decides to work. <laughs> In reverse. I, I don't know, guys. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're going forward now, so that's yeah, good. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. <laughs> going the right way. Yeah. All right, so Matthew's gospel emphasizes Jesus' connection to David because he was writing to the Jews, as we said. Um, so let's continue to look in Matthew at some of these passages. Um, not too far. So let's look up those three passages in Matthew and see how he's writing to the Jews. Again, with this emphasis in mind that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews. He's got 9, 27 through 31. 
as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Mercy on that son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. All right. 20, 29 through 34. Got it. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of God, I'm sorry, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them, what do you mean, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. All right, and then I'll read 21, 6 through 11. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them uh, to go and get a donkey, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowd going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So, again, they, they had a correct understanding that there was going to be a king who was going to come and that the Messiah was the Christ was going to come and they had in that moment correctly identified him but they had different expectations that he was going to reign and rule in that moment um, Christ was prophet priest and king he is prophet priest and king um, but not in the sense that the Jews were hoping for and so that's why Matthew is writing to them with this slant so they would realize um, he is indeed this son of David. He is the the Messiah to come, um, and he will come in in glory and reign. Again, as we read in in 26, when he was talking to Pilate, he said, "No, I the Son of Man. He's going to come and he's going to reign." Um, he said that just hours before he was crucified. So it's kind of interesting to think about that misconception of the Jews. And how close they were to embracing him as Messiah. Um, they just were off in their timeline. But future Israel, they're going to understand and, and realize that. Um, look at Romans 11, that Israel will be saved. And because of their rejection of Messiah, we have an opportunity as Gentiles to be grafted in. So it all worked out in, in God's perfect timing, and He will. Reign for eternity. Well, and they, he confounded them because the the Pharisees would say he, he was in the temple and he was teaching. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, "Who do who do you say the son of David is? And how did David say that your reign, O Lord, will be forever? Yeah, things like that. In other words." He was telling them who he was. They didn't like it, but he was telling them very directly, and that was why, in their eyes, he kept getting into trouble. Because yeah. he was saying, you know, how, how is it that David is speaking of his son and saying that his... He calls his, him Lord. Calling him Lord, yeah. yeah. I think that was more for our benefit than theirs, because they, they didn't see, they didn't have eyes to see. He didn't open up their eyes to see. Remember, he was speaking in parables for the express purpose that they wouldn't see, but that the truth would still come through and be revealed to his disciples and uh, later through the inspired writings to, to us so that we would be able to see and to recognize and to know. Um, but to the Sanhedrin, he was very direct in saying, this is what our scriptures say. Yeah. This is who I am. You don't like it, but this is who I am. And if you don't believe me, believe in the works that I have done. Yep. Right? I mean, to... 
to the to the ones that were uneducated, the masses, I guess. Yeah, he spoke in parables sometimes, but to the Sanhedrin, he was brutally direct, like right between the eyes, direct. And they said, "You search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life, but they're actually pointing to me." Right. And he went through and he detailed how they were pointing to him and how he was that son of David, how he was that Messiah, and in their sinful flesh they rejected him. Yep. Direct because they're rejecting him? Um, he's being direct to draw out the fact that they're rejecting him. Um, we're, we all reject him by nature, right? That's what we do by nature. Um, but the fact that he was sitting there and he was telling him, God in the flesh was saying, well, the scriptures, they point to me. Um, John the Baptist, he came and he was a forerunner and he was pointing to me. And I have testimony that's even greater than John the Baptist, and I perform all these miracles, the very works that my father sent me to do, I'm doing them, and my father himself, he testifies with me, and yet you guys are rejecting me. So they had all this evidence set before them, and they still crucified their Lord. And the, the other aspect of it is, it's the same reason why I hesitate to teach, is because... People like Tyler and Jeremy and Mark that get up in front of us and are teaching us, they are held to a higher standard. And Jesus was just absolutely direct with the teachers of the law. When they were mis they were misapplying scripture for their followers, he was just brutal with them. I mean, he called them snakes, he called them whitewashed tombs, he called them, you know, all of these things. Pretty direct and insulting. Point being that the people, Jesus allows that the people are can, are ignorant sometimes. He doesn't he doesn't pardon them for it, but he allows that people can be ignorant. The teachers of the law are the ones who are supposed to know the law. The ones who are taking us through Scripture, our pastors and our elders, are held to a higher standard in God's eyes. They're going to be judged by what they say at a higher level than anyone else would be. The laity, I guess, whatever you want to call it. The masses. Part of the masses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a scary verse, First John 3. All right, let's look at Jesus' Lord. Curios means master, one who possesses power and authority, uh, similar to... Adonai in the Old Testament, which means master or, or God or Lord. If Christ is not Lord, he is nothing. And C.S. Lewis said he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Um, those are our options. He made these claims. These claims are historically documented. So either he was flat out lying about it. Uh, he was thinking that he was telling the truth, but he really wasn't. He was a lunatic, or he was, in fact, and is, in fact, Lord, um, and we're all sitting here today in this place because we recognize that He is Lord. Um, let's check out these verses documenting the fact that Jesus is Lord. Um, I'll grab Philippians 2 9 through 11. If we can get other people to grab those other passages, that would be great. Whoever gets to Luke 2.11 first, go ahead and read that out. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. All right. Going back to the incarnation. Christ the Lord, the Master. Curios. Acts 4.33. Who's got that? I do With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. All right. Testifying to the Lord. Uh, Romans 1 talks about how he was declared with power by his resurrection from the dead to be the Son of God. So resurrection um, in connection with him being Lord, being Son of God, um, that's a declaration of that power. 
And then Philippians 2, 9 through 11, right after the Kenosis passage, talking about him emptying himself, uh, the humility of Jesus says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God, of God the Father, which is awesome so those people like you were talking about Andy who deny the fact that Jesus is God they will one day realize which is bittersweet right Um, every knee is going to bow every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord but for many it'll be too late and so we need to redeem the time now and uh, take advantage of the opportunity to share that with others so they can confess his lordship now rather than when it's too late Um, and this verse verse 9 which says that God highly exalted him bestowed on him the name that is above every name it's another great passage to use with Jehovah's Witnesses who say that um, God Jehovah Yahweh is unique because of his name and that he alone holds that name well he bestowed that name on Jesus which is true (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um, Revelation nineteen sixteen. Who's got that? I do. May I read from verse eleven? Absolutely. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called faithful and true, Hmm. and in righteousness he judges and wages wars. I hear a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Hmm. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, hmm. the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. You guys didn't know Jesus had a tat, right? <laughs> <laughs> on his thigh is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not just a king, not just a lord. He is uh, the first premier supreme right and we'll see that when we get into firstborn as well all right so let's look at these uh, different passages talking about how jesus is the lord and comparing this old testament expression of yahweh with john we'll see that again there is uh unity within uh the Trinity. There is but one God. If somebody wants to read those, jump on it. If not, I'll get there and read them. Yeah. Brittany likes Isaiah 40. And I'll get John 1 um, comparing that same passage. Yep, go for it. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right. So who's that passage talking about? A couple people, really. Huh? It's talking about John the Baptist, and we see that manifested here in John 1, 19 through 23. This is a testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? 
And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do we say? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, a direct quote from what Britt just read. And then he said the same thing in Matthew 3, 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Um, that was his ministry. That was his purpose in life. Um, to point people to the Lord, to the true master. Um, realizing as he did that he must decrease and Christ himself must increase. Well, that's different, right? Um, Jesus is identified as Yahweh in these passages, making him in making him one in substance with the Father. So we see that unity that he's making straight the way of the Lord. Uh, those passages, or that passage in Isaiah, was using the word Yahweh, um, God's covenant name, his special name, talking about how he is self-existent. And those same passages are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. All right, looking at firstborn, another favorite title of the Jehovah's Witnesses to take and to manipulate and twist, um, saying that Jesus had some kind of beginning, that he wasn't eternal. Like begotten, firstborn denotes status or position. In this case, it is a position of authority that he is uh, preeminent. So, what's that? Firstborn? Uh, yep, it's not on there. Sorry about that. Yeah, so firstborn, um, it speaks of preeminence. That's a, an important word to jot down and to remember. Some will try to argue that firstborn means created first. Um, not true. Let's look up these passages. Again, these are passages that we would go to to prove the deity of Christ that if you get into a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, they'll go to these same passages to prove his um, humanity and the fact that he is created. And so we have to have a firm understanding of correct biblical understanding of these passages. Will somebody look up those latter two? I'll grab Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, okay, Romans 8.29, right in the, the middle of the golden chain of redemption. Um, so I'll read 28 first. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. I'll keep going. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, he had the authority to do those things because he was firstborn, because he was preeminent, because he had that authority, not because he actually was created. Um, this Colossians 1 passage is probably the, the most favorite for people to go to to say that he was created. We have to have a correct understanding of that. Does anybody have that one ready? Right. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. All right. And because the context of that passage makes it so clear that all things are created for him and through him and by him, um, nothing was created that um, is created that he hasn't created, they will take and they will insert a word there and they will say all other things were created by him. Um, so God in his divine wisdom had this passage um be written out by Paul in such a way to exclude any other thing being made by him, to exclude this heresy of Arianism, which is risen up again in the 
Jehovah's Witnesses, but they have inserted a word to to insert their heresy. Like really? Yeah, just like John one one, which says, "In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God." And they will take them, they will insert a indirect article, and they will say, "Well, the word was a God." It's not there in in the Greek. Um, so yeah, it's a, a clear sign of perversion of the the holy text of Scripture. All right, and Andy, you said you had Hebrews one. Yeah, one six. Hebrews one six. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Hmm. And we went through that a couple weeks ago in, in detail, and we talked about how he is above all the angels. He receives worship from the angels. He is worthy of worship because he is all these things. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And firstborn of all creation doesn't mean that he was the first one who was created. It means that he is preeminent over all of his creation. He is sovereign over all of his creation. Psalm 89, 20-27 gives us some insight into what this word means. Let's see. I was hoping to get through Alpha and Omega today. So we will read through this kind of quickly. Psalm 89... 20 through 27. Again, speaking of Jesus being firstborn of all creation, or just firstborn. Psalm 89. All right. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So, kind of as you were talking about before, Andy, when Jesus said, how can David say to his son, you shall be my Lord? The same kind of concept that um, he will cry to me, you are my father, you are my God, and yet I shall make him my firstborn. That doesn't mean that he's going to make him less than him, right? Even though that's kind of the, the understanding that people had. He's saying, I'll make him preeminent. I will make him of utmost importance. He will be um, the top, the first, the best, for the pro, prototokos. An updated pagan sepulchral um, in, in the tombs. Uh, inscription stated, for I am a priest by the rights of the firstborn. The Bible uses of it for Jesus' emphasis, the authority, not the, the chronology. So it's not saying he's going to be first, but he's going to be, again, uh, first. If the expression refers to the mediation of creation through Christ, it cannot be saying at the same time that he was created as the first creature. You can't create something if you're not created yourself. Because Jesus is obviously not a part of creation, Colossians 1.15 could be rendered as supreme over all creation. Jesus is full deity. He is transcendent. All right. And lastly, um, Alpha and Omega, which is just a cool phrase that harkens right back to the Old Testament in uh, Yahweh, in his declaration. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. Jesus is the first, and he is the last. This name signifies his eternality. Christ is before all and remains. And we have these three passages here. John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No, that's Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Another great passage for Jehovah's Witness is um, they really like to attack the deity of Christ is Revelation 1.8. Again, I've told you in the past that they say that 
only Jehovah is the Almighty God, and they refer to Jesus as Mighty God. But in Revelation 1.8, we see that Jesus is named as the Almighty God. I'll start in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, just like we saw in Matthew 26. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he's the Almighty. He's the Lord God. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last in that verse. Um, and jump forward to Revelation 21.6, and we see that... Um, Jesus talking there. I, I think Jesus talking there. I think that passage gets a little confusing. Um, 21.6. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water the life without cost. Um, I think that might be the Father talking there. No. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. So, that title is Applied to Christ of the Son. Again, the Almighty. In 22.13, the last chapter of the Bible. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So 12 before that. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So that phrase, Alpha and Omega, applied to both the Father and the Son, speaks of his uh, eternal dominion over all creation, first and last, without... um, having anybody give that power to him or take it away from him, um, it will never cease. All right, we'll get into the rest next week. Thoughts or questions before we close? You got something, Gary? Verse 16 there, where the son of David, too, because I the root and the descendant. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Source and descendant. He is both just and the justifier. And that same verse 16, we see his power and authority over the angels. He says, I will send my angel. That angel is mine. So going back to Hebrews 1, how he is superior over all the angels. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you once again for who you are. We thank you for the beauty of your word, for how it declares your glory, and uh, just the the amazing fact that you became a man for the sake of sinners like us. Um, Something we will never wrap our minds around. We thank you for, um, without words to even express how thankful we are that the God of all creation stepped into time and took our sin upon himself. God, we are unworthy, and we thank you for your love for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.